Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And if you appreciate what we're doing here, tell somebody, tell them, tell them in person, or just give us a shout out on your favorite social media. We're on all of them. And that's the best way we have of spreading the word and including more folks in the kinds of conversations like the one we're having today with Stuart Stevens. Stuart Stevens is a seventh generation Mississippian and sometimes Santa Monican. Is that, is that how you say it? Santa Monican? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Uh, and hey, Stuart has been driven by a fascination and love of politics, film, and writing, and has pursued those interests throughout his life. Stuart did a lot of schooling, having attended Oxford, Middlebury College, UCLA Film School's MFA program. The AFI, and I think I'm missing one. Uh, Colorado? Did I? I, I think I, I, I went to undergrad at Colorado College, um, as did uh, sort of curiously all of the females in the Cheney family. Oh, how about that? Liz, Mary, and their mom. Is that uh, by coincidence, or is that uh... you'd have to ask them? <laughs> uh, it was a coincidence that I, that I went there. I didn't know them then. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they were talking about that in the Cheney household. This guy, Stuart Stevens. Uh, but, but they tell this funny story of, uh, you know, uh, their dad flunked out of Yale and got a job as a union lineman in Gunnison, Colorado. And uh, he had gone to high school with Lynn Cheney and uh, he would drive, it's almost like 12 hours from Gunnison to Colorado Springs and sleep in his truck, they tell the story. Um, and the, the girls still kid their dad about that <laughs> how about that um yeah my uh my oldest kid was doing that drive they were flying into i guess it was no it wasn't denver there's another airport in colorado and then driving up to laramie um they had a boyfriend up in uh wyoming yeah uh, so well okay so uh, to finish this uh, little intro so folks uh, i'm sure folks know who you are but i want to get it for the record so to speak uh Stuart is the author of eight books including his latest and an upcoming one that we're not going to talk about just yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but the latest was published in 2020. It's called It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump and ends kind of like a Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, but uh, we'll get to that. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post and Esquire, among other publications. He's written extensively for television shows, including one of my favorites, Northern Exposure, Commander in Chief and K Street. And for 25 years, Stewart was the lead strategist and media consultant for some of the nation's toughest political campaigns, including five presidential campaigns. And four of those campaigns, his candidate became the nominee, and two of them, they won the big enchilada, so to speak. Um, now, I'm not sure if we'll get to this, uh, but Stewart is, uh, has a longtime interest in endurance sports, which he says he pursues badly, <laughs> and coming from a little bit of it just now. But we will certainly be talking about another endurance sport called Campaigns, as well as Stuart's work with the Lincoln Project, where he currently serves as an advisor. Stuart Stevens, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for asking me to the party, man. Yeah, yeah. It's great to have you. You know, I wanted to start, you made a very brief uh, mention in the latest book that basically prompted me to go start reading the last season. Um, it was a turn in your father's career. You said, my dad was in the FBI when Hoover ordered the roundup of Asian Americans. Right. He hated it and quit, joined the Navy, and spent the next three years fighting in the South Pacific. Like so many, he didn't talk a lot about the war. But when it came to leaving the FBI, this is the key. He told me once, you can always say no. So I, I just love to hear more about your dad and how his choices influenced your own. Well, you know, my, my dad was sort of a quintessential greatest generation figure. I mean, he's... 
he's both extraordinary and very normal. I mean, there are, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions like him. Um, I grew up in Mississippi, went to Ole Miss, went to Ole Miss Law School, then became an FBI agent. Uh, there was some connection with someone in the FBI to Ole Miss. Um, I never quite got it straight because another friend of his also a uh, law school buddy went into the FBI and they both ended up uh, stationed in Manhattan. And he was having the time of his life. He was running around like chasing would-be German spies and going to the theater every night. Wow. I mean, you know, for a guy from Mississippi, this was like a dream job. And, you know, all I lived in New York for a million years and I could always call him. And if I was going to some obscure place, obscure to me, where I'd never been on the subway system, I could always call him and he would know because the subway system basically hadn't changed since 1945. <laughs> um, and he would get on the subway and go all these weird places when uh, he was chasing spies. Uh, but then he was, um, when they ordered the roundup of Asian Americans, he did it for a day and then he quit, um, joined the Navy. Never talked about the war much, but had, had a hard war. If there's such things as an easy war. Uh, spent three years in the South Pacific. A lot of this I learned, you know, the, the World War II Museum in New Orleans, which is a wonderful thing. It's just wonderful. To my mind, it's the best part of New Orleans, uh, has an oral history program. And they made a concerted effort to go around. They probably still are, though there's a lot, not many left, interviewing World War II veterans. And they have accumulated a database. So you can go in and if you were looking up say a unit that someone was in they would tell you what oral histories they had of that unit it's, it's really it's really fascinating so he was interviewed and it was only when he was interviewed that i learned a lot of this because he didn't talk about it much like so many people um but 28 island landings and uh came back started a law firm with uh his college roommate and three other guys and, you know, just built a life. Um, that law firm now is one of the largest in the South. And they were the people that came back and went about living lives and building the country. And I mean, it's, it's really extraordinary, um, you know, what, what they did. And how did how did some of those choices? It seems that some of the choices that you had to make later in your career, uh, it, I don't know if I'm making too much of this, but it's almost like you had your dad's voice uh, in your in your ear well, when you were making some of those hard choices. Yeah, but you know, um, look, a, a lot of people were wrong about Donald Trump in 2016, but it's really hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. Um, <laughs> I didn't think he'd win the primary. I I, I sort of famously or infamously or stupidly or all three said, I didn't think he'd win a primary. Now I said that in part to be provocative in part because of wishful thinking and he did lose Iowa. So I was looking good there for a while and I didn't think he'd win the general. And when he did, you know, I had friends that said, well, this isn't really the Republican party. He stole the Republican party or hijacked it, but I just couldn't come to, it just seemed false to me. I mean, he was the Republican Party and the Republican Party had endorsed him and accepted him with very few exceptions like Mitt Romney. So I started asking myself sort of like, how did I miss this? How did I get it so wrong? And in that kind of high school English teacher way that if you can't write it, you don't really understand it. I just started reading and writing, not thinking it would be a book, but it turned into this book, how it was all a lie. And you know, I, my, my conclusion was that there are always sort of two sides to the Republican Party in post-World War II. There was an Eisenhower side, which was sane, boring, governing, decent, and a Joe McCarthy side, mm. conspiratorial, paranoid, xenophobic, often racist, non-governing. And I, I, I think, oh, I know I did, and I think sort of in my group, those of us who were sort of drawn to George W. Bush and compassionate conservatism, I think it's fair to say that we all assumed that we were the dominant genes. And we saw this dark side, but we thought we would emerge as what the party, the future of the party, if only because the party would have to change or have to go our way because the country was changing so rapidly. 
I mean, I, you know, I thought about it one day when I was in the gym and I was watching Nicole Wallace and there, there used to be literally we used, a group of us used to sit in the same room in Bush headquarters, me, Nicole, um, Matthew Dowd, you know, was on ABC for a long time. Mike Matthew. Gerson, Pete Wayner, Mike Gerson, Pete Wayner, uh, Mark McKinnon. Yeah. Um, and we all ended up in the same place about Trump without ever talking about it. It was just so a, the antithesis of everything that, that we believed in. Now, it's not to say that we were perfect in Bush world. And I mean, I think we played too much to the dark side, but at least we aspired to something that was better than we were. Right. And we, I think, to some degree, acknowledged our failures. Uh, Ken Melman, who was chairman of the party in 2005, went to the NAACP and apologized for the Southern strategy. Now, you know, Bush didn't get much more of the African-American, really didn't get any more than African-American votes than Trump. But does that matter? I think it matters because at a certain point, you know, the party really embraced white grievance. So, um, you know, I, I look back with a, a lot of regrets. There seem to be two kinds of people in the world, those that go through life without regrets and then people like me. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I, I, you know, there's a certain trope of book that people write about Washington and politics, like if only they had listened to me trying to settle scores and, you know, I, if, if only they listened to me. Well, I, I couldn't write that book because they did listen to me. You know, I helped elect more of these people than any other consultant or any other consulting firm. And I just never thought what would happen happened. And I, I don't, I, I, I didn't want to write a book and I don't want to now blame anyone else. Yeah. One of, the, one of the things that really drew me to the Republican Party was this sense of personal responsibility, which, of course, turned out to be a total fraud. But I don't know how to begin to try to reclaim that without taking personal responsibility. So, you know, the first the first sentence in my book basically is blame me. <laughs> you know, I was I was part of it. There is something interesting about the time, the specific time and the specific place when you did become a Republican. You grew up in Mississippi yep. in the early to mid 60s. Right. And declaring, you know, becoming a Republican at that particular time in that particular place was almost counterculture. The segregationists were all Democrats up until yeah. about that time. Most most of the Democratic Party was segregationist uh, and certainly the Democratic Party power structure. And there was a young, really sort of good guy, classic, uh, Rotarian kind of young lawyer named Thad Cochran, who ran for Congress oh, as a yeah. Republican, who ran for Congress as a Republican. Yeah. And I mean, I certainly didn't really think very deeply about it, but I knew I didn't want to be like Jim Eastman or, you know, John Stennis. And Cochran was this young, very attractive guy, you know, he's friends of my family. So I worked in that race. Um, and then I kind of became a Republican. And, you know, in politics, once you start to work on one side, it's really difficult if you do it professionally to switch because you end up not being trusted by either side. And I, I really didn't think a lot about policy, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I never was a guy who, as we would say, went inside. I never worked in government. There's some people who can do this well both sides. I think Carl Rove did a very good job. And he was brilliant in campaigns. Brilliant. People don't really understand Carl. Um, I mean, I think Carl is a genius. Uh, David Axelrod seemed to do it well. But I knew I would always suck at being in government. So I didn't want to go in. To me, it was about winning or losing. And I felt good when I won. And I felt bad when I lost. It was very simple. <laughs> and um, I liked the definitiveness of it. I mean, in regular advertising, if you're trying to say up deposits of a bank 50% and you're up them 49.99%, you probably think that you did a good job. In politics, you like jump out of a window. Yeah, you either win or lose, period. Either win or lose. And I like that. Um, I, I think like a lot of people in sports and politics, you quickly realize the pain of losing is greater than the pleasure of winning. <laughs> um, but it's partly the desire to avoid that pain that drives you. I think that, um, that was the longtime manager of the Pirates who said that. Uh, and he was just more recently uh, manager. Why am I forgetting his name? He's 
Leland, uh, Jim Leland. Right, right. Jim When's Leland. the time yeah. to retire? When it doesn't hurt as bad to lose as it feels good to win or something along those lines. I have to go look that up. I've heard that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I liked campaigns because um, I could do them and then it was over and I could yeah. pursue other parts of my life. Writing and a, a lot of travel writing that I did. I was really fascinated by the travel writing genre. But in retrospect, um, I should have thought more about this, about where the party was headed. I'm not sure what I would have done about it. Mm. I mean, I liked everyone I worked for. I don't know. I don't know if that's a fair flagellum to to apply to yourself, because, look, as recently as 2012, we had a pretty decent. I'm saying we I, I really liked that ticket, even though I wasn't one of those guys who thought Obama was doing such a apocalyptic yeah. job. But I thought I just I love that Romney Ryan ticket. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I work for that campaign. Yeah. Um, and it's an interesting, I think, kind of intellectual, political science or sociology thought process to go through and say, okay, if Romney had won, what would have happened to the Republican Party? You know, so I, I'll tell you, and this is just very, in my little tiny world, my dad, lifelong uh, liberal, I don't think he's ever voted for a Republican in his life, but he uh, he now looks back and says he wishes that he voted for Romney because yeah. he knows that Romney would have done a competent job, albeit, you know, having policies that were vastly different than his own preferences. But doing a competent job would have won him a second term and that would have avoided, you know, this whole the, save the country from from, you know, the Trump the Trumpification yeah. of, of the Republican Party, Trumpification of a large part of the, the country. You know, I think about it a lot, like in the 30s, when there was a huge fascist movement in America, why didn't America become fascist? And probably because FDR was president, not Lindbergh. Oh, that's so, interesting. You know, maybe what we used to learn in civics classes, when we still had civics classes, that leaders matter. You know, maybe that turned out to be true. But, you know, my the only sort of intellectually honest conclusion that I can come to about Trump is that he didn't change the party. He revealed the part mm. and he gave permission to people to be their worst selves. And that's an easy thing for people to embrace because it's always easy to be your worst self. And Trump validated that. You know, Trump said that little spurt of road rage you feel if somebody cuts you off, like if you let them do that, you're a sucker. That your best self is if you go and you do whatever it takes to, you yeah. know, not, not let that happen. And it's the antithetical to most of the lessons we have in life from most of our, you know, teachers, coaches, Cub Scout leaders, Boy Scout leaders, you know, but the party embraced that. And I think that it was a dark side that Trump validated. I think had Mitt been president, he would not have I know he wouldn't have taken the party in that direction. And I think it would have gone in a different direction. But, you know, one of the interesting things is, I mean, not to get too in the weeds, but, you know, Romney lost with 57.2% of the electorate. Uh, Trump won with 56.1%. With less. Yeah. yeah. So the main reason... Trump won is he ran in a year in which you could win 56.1%. And I, one of the reasons I thought Trump would lose is I didn't think that there were enough white voters that would mobilize to vote for him. And I was wrong. And Trump got a lot of these voters to turn out, these low in, in propensity voters, by a anti-Muslim racist appeal. And, you know, you could sit in a room, I mean, I spent a year and a half doing this, looking at polls in Romney's race, and you could see that there was a segment of the population of the electorate, Republican electorate, that would be moved by that kind of appeal. I, you know, Romney never would even consider, we never even talked about it. I, I would have thought, if you just asked me, I would have thought that whatever you gained, if you went that direction, you would lose from college-educated Republicans who are more moderate. So even if you wanted to do that, it's a purely tactical question. Right. Well, the loss would have been greater than the gain. But it turned out to be wrong. And Trump 
I think because he was embraced for the most part by the party establishment, was able to have both. And he kept college educated Republicans, though he won them with a lot less degree. I mean, ultimately, this is all about race, which is something people kind of don't talk about enough and don't grasp enough. I mean, so 1980, Ronald Reagan wins his sweeping landslide with like five, 44 states or something, with 58% of the white vote. 2008, John McCain loses a not very close race with 58% of the white vote. So there you have it. Yeah. 85% of Trump's coalition in 2020 was white. The country is somewhere between 57 and 60% white. And since we've been on this podcast, it's less white. <laughs> and we're headed to a minority majority country. Right. And the Republican Party had a critical decision. Would it do what it took to appeal to more non-white voters? Or would it go down another path of trying to maximize white voters through racist, xenophobic, appeal and make it harder for non-white voters to vote and tragically went the, the second route and ultimately everything about election denial and everything is about race i mean if you look at the areas that they talked about there being these illegal votes these mysterious they're all heavily african-american areas philadelphia atlanta detroit yeah you know nobody said like there's a lot of illegal votes in pensacola I mean, it was you know, <laughs> like, or, you know, nice suburbs of Atlanta. Um, Marietta. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, you know, when I talk about this with my Republican friends, they quickly say, and it's a fair comment, well, look, sir, are you telling me, well, they used to say 67 million, that's what Trump got. Now they say, what did he get the second time? 70 million, 70, whatever he got. They say, yeah. you really think there's 70 million plus uh, racists in the country? And my answer is, well, actually, I do think there are 70 million racists in the country, but I don't think that you had to be a racist to vote for Trump. I think that having a racist, something was more important to you than having a racist as president. Right. Because yeah. it was very difficult to deny that Trump was a racist. Yes. And I think you deal with that throughout the book. It, and and you, you, you also uh, hit, um, give it historical context. Uh, I was going to I was going to ask you about there, there was one section of the book when you when you talk about this uh, historical figure named Franz von Papen. Yep. Do you remember? Uh, could could oh, you yeah. could you share share with well, the Franz, audience? Franz von Papen was the Prussian aristocrat who more probably than any other political leader in Germany ushered in Hitler. And he wrote a fascinating memoir, which for reasons I don't understand, you can get on Kindle today. So you can download it. In 1953, it was published in 1954, he wrote this, right? So 1953, you could look back at the previous, you know, history of Germany and things had gone a little sideways, right? A little I mean, bit. Well, yeah. World War II, 100 million dead. And he still was defending it. And his defense and logic was, you, you have to understand that we, the aristocrats, had lost touch with the German working class. And they were either going to become Bolshevik or we had to unite with Hitler because he would keep them and they would not become Bolshevik. And we did the right thing at the time. Now, you know, we lost a little control of it. And I think it's directly analogous to the Mitch McConnells, all of the Republican establishment that thought they could control Trump. And this is how you're Mitch McConnell. You wake up on January 5th, 2021, and you're majority leader. You wake up on January 6th, 2021, you're minority leader, and you're running for your life in your own office. Right. So these, there's always this idea that you could sort of ride this tiger. Uh, it never proves to be the case. And, you know, it's a Faustian bargain. What people forget about Mephistopheles is not only does he not deliver, he, not only does he take your soul, he doesn't deliver. Right. So I think it's directly analogous. You know, people say we can't talk about World War II. Or, I think you have to. It's not to say what's going to happen here. It's going to be like World War II. But I think the compromises and moral failures of much of the Republican Party is directly analogous to what happened in Germany, you know, with the good Germans. 
another another illustration or analogy that you make is, uh, you know, listen, I have friends that are still strong supporters of Trump. And, you know, I think it has more to do with who they're listening to on the radio. They're big Dan Bongino fans or even Ben Shapiro fans. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily put them in exactly the same class, but they, they say, well, what about the judges? And what about Jerusalem? Instead of Tel Aviv, and what about uh, taxes? And you, it's you. Do you remember the analogy that you made about uh, at a wedding? You know, do, do you remember? That? It just really oh. struck me that that listen. Yeah. You know, if if um, if you're at a wedding and um, there is a, a mass, you know, the, the war breaks out between the two families, between the bride and the groom groom's family, and there are several dead, but they still end up taking their vows. You can't say, well, at least they took their vows. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm ruining it, but it was something yeah. along those lines. <laughs> I, well, look, I mean, how did the whole judges thing work out? Did it really work out? The uh, Supreme Court sure. now, the Supreme Court is at its lowest level of respect in American history because McConnell lied the way that they appointed these judges and, and rammed it through. And the judges, if technically they didn't lie in a perjury sense, right? they certainly... Um, they misled about the... Uh, they misled. Starry decisive yeah. thing. I don't think that the judges thing worked out as well as they thought. And look, let's, let's see what happens here. Um, what, what I think is difficult for a lot of us to grasp difficult for me to grasp, but I think it's important to grasp is you know, the Republican Party really has become an autocratic movement. It's not a traditional party in the sense that we always had a, a party. There's really no governing philosophy behind the Republican Party. You can't articulate a coherent center-right philosophy of government with any credibility. Say what you will about Elizabeth Warren, she can articulate a center-left theory of government and defend it. You can argue with her. You know, you may think it's terrible, but there is some theory of government there. And this is how you end up with people, you know, like Herschel Walker or like J.D. Vance, who's really just sort of a better educated version of Herschel Walker. But I, I think, I believe that we are at a great the greatest danger point we've had for democracy since 1860 and, and part of the problem about this is talking about it because you always sound alarmist and it's kind of like a pandemic whatever you say at the beginning will be alarmist but at the end is inadequate so you look at these election deniers um and most republicans just to be clear are election deniers of one sort yeah because if you don't if you're not willing to assert that Donald Trump lost a free and fair election, you are an election denier. Right. So Ron DeSantis doesn't go out there and talk about this, but Ron DeSantis won't say Donald Trump lost a free and fair election. Very few will. And there's not one Republican that I'm aware of on the ballot who, and for Congress or Senate, who has said they will not support Donald Trump if he's the nominee. So just even knowing everything we know now. Right. Which is just extraordinary. But what happens in this is the, the normalizations of the extremes. You know, there are always these freaks around the, the Republican Party, right? The, the Steve Bannons. Right. You know, the Kellyanne Conways, the Stephen Millers, the Corey Lewandowski. It's not like these people woke up in 2016 and wanted to get involved in presidential politics. They were always trying to get involved. Yeah. I mean, I, I have an answering machine from 2000. We still had the answering machine probably somewhere in storage that has messages from Steve Bannon, like begging to get involved, but just nobody would let him. Mm. And it is like Germany, you know, Trump let these freaks and weirdos, Jason Miller, who was my intern in the White House, Sir Gorka. And that is what the party has become. And parties in our system need to perform a circuit breaker function. And the Republican Party never pulled the circuit breaker. So you you cite uh, extensively uh, a, a really academic, a great thorough scholarly work called How Democracies Die. Yep. And I'll put it in the show notes and, and link it to uh, the authors. Uh, but I, this is this is really interesting. So you, 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 your citation is we should, this is from How Democracies Die. We should worry when a politician, one, 
rejects in words or action the democratic rules of the game. Two, denies the legitimacy of opponents. Three, tolerates or encourages violence. Or four, indicates a willingness to curtail the civil liberties of opponents, including the media. Now, it was all a lie. Came out in 2020, uh, and you took you you actually took inventory of specific reasons Trump had given us to that point to really worry. But just a couple of years removed from that, though, that accounting looks quaint in comparison. Those guys, those those Harvard professors, have a new book coming out in January. Okay, and um, they interviewed me for that book. Okay, and we were sort of laughing. I said, "Your book turned out to be way over optimistic." Yeah. And they were, they were saying, look, when we wrote this thing, our editor said, like, isn't this a little too much? Isn't this a little dark? And, you know, when do you read our next book? Right. I mean, we're, we're ahead of schedule. And, you know, I, I think the greatest danger is not recognizing the greatest danger. And when you look at when democracy slides into autocracy, one of the elements seems to always be that those who are pro-democratic can't imagine it being any other way. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. And it doesn't happen. I mean, they write about this and how democracies die. Anne Applebaum wrote this beautiful book called Twilight of Democracy, um, where she uses Hungary as a model of what could happen in the United States. I, I go around and pass out these books like watchtowers and airports to random strangers, you know. Um, I just think if everybody read them, <laughs> it would be so obvious. But, you know, modern democracies tend not to die in violent coups. It's not like in India and Chile, you know, the palace is bombed. It's at the ballot box and in the courtroom. So if Georgia passes a law that the state legislature can overturn the popular vote, when the state legislature overturns the popular vote, it's not illegal. That'll be a really, that's a case coming up in the Supreme Court this, this term. It's a North Carolina law that uh, what, what is the doctrine? It's the uh, state. Uh, yeah. I forgot the name of it, but it's basically the state legislature can do whatever the whatever the fuck they want. And you look at, you know, I, I worked a lot in the Republican Party in Pennsylvania. So I worked for Tom Ridge, who's the last Republican governor reelected in Pennsylvania. Right. So now you have this this lunatic Doug Mastriano. Yeah, who's the Republican nominee. Who probably will lose, but you know, as I say, in a world when Donald Trump could be president, anything can happen. Anything can happen. And Mastriano is, you know, he's not only was him not only at the insurrection, he not only crossed police lines, he not only lied to the FBI about it, he paid for others to go to the Capitol as part of the coup. Yeah. And he is straight up a hundred percent not trying to hide this. And in Pennsylvania, the governor appoints the secretary of state. And he's basically said, I'm going to appoint the person to make sure that whoever I wants to win will win. Yeah. And that could happen. It's such a contrast. You, you look at Carrie Lake. You shared a story about Tom Ridge uh, when right. the first time he won, he had to take a really tough vote. He was a uh, representative, a congressman at the he time. Was a, he was a Republican congressman from a Democratic district in Erie, Pennsylvania. And Tom is, a, you know, he's one of my heroes. He uh, first in his family to graduate from college. He grew up in veteran-assisted public housing, went to Harvard on a scholarship, got drafted, and is one of the few people, we never able to find anybody else, there must be someone else, who refused and went to Ivy League college and went in the military and refused an officer's commission. He didn't want to be an officer, he wanted to be a grunt. Went to Vietnam as a you know, staff sergeant, bronze star, and came back to Erie, uh, became a prosecutor, and then got elected to Congress. And this vote was um, in 1994, and it was for the assault weapon ban. And it happened like 10 days before the Republican primary. And the Republican primary was very hotly contested that year for governor. And Ridge actually started out fifth in a field of five. Oh. And the leading political columnist um, in Pennsylvania called Tom Ridge, the man no one had ever heard of from the city no one's ever seen, because he, <laughs> he was from Erie. He said, adopt Which, that as your, your campaign <laughs> slogan. <laughs> yeah, and well, we did, we, we put it in the first ad. And so he had run this really great campaign. He was not in first place, but 
you know, we could see a way to win. And this uh, assault weapon vote came up. And I remember this vividly. A pollster said, look, you know, Tom, if you vote for this, there's every reason to think you're going to lose the Republican nomination. And Tom was like, you know, I think his exact words was like, screw it, I don't care. Yeah. And, you know, he was a prosecutor. He saw too many people get shot and killed and maimed with guns, with assault weapons. Um, and he voted for it. I think he's one of 30-something, 30 38 maybe, Republicans who voted for it. And that, you know, I, that's what I I just don't understand. There's so many of these people I helped elect. And I, I don't understand. Being a senator is actually a pretty lousy job. And being a congressman is a worse job. You know, you're, you have to probably be away from your family a lot. Um, it's incredibly demanding. You don't get to control your schedule unless you're a majority leader, minority leader. You, you know, you have to deal with all these lunatics that are your colleagues. You don't get paid a ton of money. So what if you lose? What if you oppose Donald Trump and you lose a primary? Like, why is that such a big deal? Yeah. And I, I, I just, I don't, like I say, I never asked myself why, how 1930s Germany happened again. So we spent a lot of this conversation, I feel like, in Act Five of Hamlet. <laughs> but I want to, I want to find like another. I'm very depressed. I'm very depressing. <laughs> Everybody's dying. When I gave, when I gave my uh, manuscript of my book to my uh, longtime political partner, I said, you know, it's depressing but short. And he said, short. So are suicide notes. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I do want to ask, I want to challenge you maybe then, uh, you, uh, toward the end of the book, you, you describe watching the Republican party is like watching a friend drink himself to death and you, you kind of explain it now in Al-Anon, uh, it's often said you didn't cause it. You can't control it. You can't cure it. So nonetheless, how would you cure the Republican party? You have to, you have to burn the Republican party to the ground. There is no, there is no reforming this Republican party. This is a Republican Party that just ran a Cheney out of the party. Yeah. A Cheney. A Cheney, yeah. So you have to just defeat these people. That's the only hope. And I can't tell you it's going to happen. I, you know, it's, look, I'm at a stage in my life, I never thought I'd still be making political ads. But what drew me to the Lincoln Project was, yeah, it was a way to fight. And actually in October of 20, I entertain this fantasy. If we win this thing, I can quit doing this. But then everything happened after the election. And it was like, I can't walk away from this. And there is no, how do you meet the guy in the Capitol and the camp all switch sweatshirt halfway? Right. How do you compromise with that person? What is, it's like the Ukrainians. You're going to compromise with the Russians. So they're they're only going to take like, they're only going to kill a certain number of your people for genocide. You can't. You can't compromise with evil, and this is evil. And I think far too much time, personally, is spent trying to understand these Trump people. I don't care. I just want to beat them. I don't need to understand why their justifications for being anti-democratic. If you go back and you look at David Duke, when David Duke almost got elected governor, you know, in in Louisiana, go read those articles. They're fascinating. It was all about economically depressed Louisiana white voters, you know, which is bullshit. It wasn't about that. It was about race. What, yeah, white ravens. You know, Donald Trump's all this stuff that Donald Trump awakened some like you know middle class or lower white middle class voters. Look. Donald Trump won one economic group in 2020, and that's who, those that make 100000 or more a year. He lost every other group. Mitt Romney, when he ran in 2012, Mitt won fifty dollars to $100,000. He actually won a lot more middle-class voters than Trump did. So I don't, I, I don't buy this idea that it um, is any of these justifications that people give. They're economically depressed. What about African-Americans, right? So African-Americans, the most economically depressed group in America by society, by law, by 
economic um, yeah median income power, medium wealth, income yeah you know they were killed murdered tortured not to vote so I don't see it you know they didn't storm the Capitol they didn't give up they kept working in the system and registering voters and so I don't I I respect that I don't respect these Trump people I really don't care what they think. Mm. I think I think it's evil. And you know, you could sit there and you could say, well, you know, anti-Semitism is a lot of roots, you know, maybe this. I don't care. It, yeah. it was, you know, in the 30s it was anti-Semitic, it's anti-Semitic today. Right. So you just have to you have to defeat these people. I, I do want to ask you a little bit about what the Lincoln Project is working on for the for the midterms and then beyond into 2024. Yeah. But there, I, I I would be remiss if I didn't uh, have you address. Uh, and Reed Galen actually came on our program uh -huh. in the spring of 21, and he talked about it was really uh, not too long after a bunch of those scandals came out. Right. Yeah. Um, so could could you could you uh, for our audience summarize? Um, so some of the trouble, what some of the trouble was, perhaps some of the mistakes yeah, the organization know, think, made. And listen, I think I have a good perspective on this because you know, when the Lincoln Project started, um, I, I, well, everybody knows everybody in this weird world of politics, you know. And yeah, I was dating you and Rick back Steve, to uh, Connie Max campaign or something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's very small world. So Steve called me about joining the Lincoln Project, but. You know, I, I was one of these guys that said, why doesn't somebody primary Trump? So Bill Weld, he used to be governor of Massachusetts and yeah. was one of my first clients. Okay. And Weld was a huge win. And he won in 1990. It's the first Republican elected in 20 plus years. We forget that because there's been a string of Republican governors since then. I love the guy. He announced that he was going to run against Trump. So it was kind of like he called my bluff. And it was like, well, hell, I've got to go do it now. So I left my firm. And we, I really got to a point where I, I couldn't do this anymore anyway for Republicans in Congress. Uh, and I, worked for, I was working for Well, not, not that we thought he was going to win, but I thought it was important to try to do everything I could to help him. So I worked for Weld, and I couldn't be part of the Lincoln Project when it started. So I think that gives me a good perspective in it because, I mean, look, the Lincoln Project was basically four guys who came together or well, five guys they brought uh, um, George Conway in as well. And they wrote an op-ed. They thought that maybe they'd raise $5 million. And it really, I, I, I can say this because I wasn't part of it and it doesn't sound, you know, vainglorious or self-flattering. Self a, a movement showed up. Mm. So, I mean, the Lincoln Project within a year had more social, had more Twitter followers than the DNC or RNC. I mean, it's extraordinary. And, you know, people talk about the effectiveness of it. Well, look, over $3 billion was spent in 2020 in campaigns. Over $3 billion. Uh, politics is the only business that every cycle we spend more money. It's recession-proof. The only group that Donald Trump was so obsessed with, he tried to get the Justice Department to shut down with the Lincoln Project. <laughs> and, you know, the amount of money that we had in the Lincoln Project was something like 0.001% of sometimes just $3 billion. I think it had a far outside impact on its uh, race. And what these guys did, they understood something that I, I wouldn't have done this. I, 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 and that was that the old traditional politics that you just raise a bunch of money and you put it in ads on television and, you know, run it the last couple of months and hope you win. They understood that it was fought in the culture. Right. And people say, well, you only spent like less than 30% of the money that you spent on television. And it's like, yes, that's the point. Yeah. It was broader than that because you right. didn't have to. So. You could go and you could drive Donald Trump crazy and get him to fire his campaign manager, which was a direct result of what the Lincoln Project did. And Trump campaign never recovered from that. You know, this guy had spent two, three years building the campaign. He, you know, was, I think, it was like a scene out of Goodfellas after the heist, you know, and they went out and bought the furs and the guy was buying Ferraris and stuff like that. <laughs> 
And we just yeah. pointed this out and Trump went crazy and fired him. They never recovered. Hell, it was the Lincoln Project that ran the ad after the election that pointed out that it was up to Mike Pence on January 6th to certify the election. Trump didn't understand that till then. If you go and you read these post-election oh. uh, post books, like the Costa Woodward book, the Phil Rucker book, yeah. it's all in there. You know, like Trump saw this ad in the Lincoln Project. He goes, really, Mike can do that? <laughs> that's so interesting yeah because it's he's not it. he's not it's studying up it. on his civics he's he's watching 15 second ads you know like yeah yeah i mean so i mean the, the guy yeah and you know he's so incredibly ignorant so you know every other presidential campaign i worked for had a lot of structure you know it had lawyers they set you down they said don't do this don't do that which is one of the reasons when you hear that the Trump campaign had 100 contacts with Russians, over 100. It's the most mind-boggling thing involved in politics. I mean, anybody who worked in any presidential campaign, Democrat, Republican, whatever, I mean, that's like, it, it, you know, it's just like a mind-boggling. I mean, any other campaign, if a Russian had approached you, you, you would have gone immediately to the, the council, who would immediately have gone to the FBI immediately i yeah. mean it's incredible. but anyway these campaigns had a lot of structure they had a you know pamphlets on how to you know like employee pamphlets they had people that headed up different divisions they had lawyers they had so the lincoln project really it didn't have any of that because it was all about this sort of urgency of the moment trying to defeat donald trump very tactical very targeted and, well it just it was not you know Presidential campaigns usually are start at least two years out and you build them. This started with an op-ed in December. Yeah. And so it, it sort of grew by people running to the sounds of the guns. And a bunch of well-intended people. And, you know, every campaign I've been involved in, there were internal jealousies about stuff like this. But basically i think the people who had the most experience in presidential at this high level were the ones who dealt with this the best you know i, I we went out to to park city it was very weird because of covid and all i did i had this little sort of human storage unit apartment and we would get up in the morning to have a call. Sometimes we'd get together at Steve or Reed's house. And then I would just go work all day. I mean, I got up at five and went to the gym and did that. That's all I did. I never even, we had a headquarters. I never even went into headquarters except once a week for COVID tests. I mean, they could have been doing human sacrifice at headquarters and I wouldn't have known. I mean, literally, I mean, I, it was just about work. I mean, we produced this incredible volume of work. Yeah. So look, I, I think some of the criticism about the need for more structure in the Lincoln Project is, is valid and it's, it's, it's happened now. I think a lot of the criticism that is um, over, say, finances and stuff comes from those who either hate the Lincoln Project, you know, the Trump people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, Look, if you're a professional on the left or the right, the Lincoln Project comes in, does things differently. I can guarantee a lot of clients were asking their consultants, why can't we do this? Mm -hmm. And uh, donations were going to the Lincoln Project. And there was a, a lot of sort of jealousy there. Like, you know, why are these guys doing it? How can these guys do it? You know, we never polled, we never tested. So, you know, the, I mean, not to get you in the weeds, but the reality is if there was anything that had happened financially that was remotely improper, this is all under FEC law. The first thing someone does in, is files an FEC complaint. If they think there's any hint that this might go anywhere, and I've been involved in these in lots of campaigns, and they do it because it's a pain in the ass for you, you have to get lawyers, you have to go through, 
No one has ever filed an FEC complaint against the Lincoln Project. And these young people would do anything because there's just nothing there. I think um, it was certainly an imperfect organization. But then, I mean, most presidential campaigns, to a lot of degree, are. I mean, go read Anonymous about the Clinton campaign in 1992. Yeah. We had miles I mean, on. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, so I don't know. I, it was, for me, it was a great experience. And it was incredibly liberating not to have a client because you could get up in the morning, you could decide, you know, Rick and I could talk, we decided what we're going to do, Steve, Reed, and just go do it. Yeah. And we didn't have to run it by a client. And, you know, in a campaign, if you make an ad calling your opponent a liar and the candidate gets asked, hey, you got an ad saying your opponent's a liar, do you think your opponent's a liar? The candidate better damn well say yes. Or otherwise, like the whole campaign's going to fall apart. We didn't have that problem. No one was going to say to, to, to Joe Biden, like, hey, why did you put up that ad in Times Square with like Ivanka and Jared? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was incredibly liberating. Yeah. Um, and it made us much more effective. So I don't know, you know, I, I, a lot of these things I think about sort of the way I think about our politics now. I can guarantee you 10 years from now, no one is going to remember whether or not Build Back Better was 2.2 billion, 3.3, 1.1 billion. They will remember whether or not 2024 is the last election that resembles an American election. And I look back with the like just stuff with the link about all of this, a lot of this is life imitating high school. Yeah. And what really counts is the work. And I I think the work of the Lincoln Project has been uh, incredibly helpful to this cause. You know, causality in politics is always difficult to pinpoint. You ask people why they voted, and you ask them at two o'clock, and you ask them at six o'clock, you can get different answers because people are complicated and we have different reasons. But I think that the Lincoln Project, by virtue of the fact that the sort of market of voters spoke to the Lincoln Project, that it drew all of these people, millions of followers that are intensely still with the Lincoln Project. And it's the only organization I know of any size in American politics that really has people on the right and the left. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's real concern. I was riding my bike with this friend of mine. He brought another friend who's a lawyer. And he was saying, oh, dude, I love the Lincoln Project, you know, and I'm a communist. <laughs> really? He goes, well, not really, but I, my, my dad was a blacklisted screenwriter and I like was a red diaper baby. And I mean, that's weird. Yeah. You know, and. But you have communists all the way to, you know, folks who worked on. Because, because it, yeah, because it really is about democracy. And I think that's, that's what's important to me. It's, it's the work. So what's, what's Lincoln Project doing now? And, and what's your outlook for 2022 and, and well, beyond? You know, the Lincoln Project did a really interesting thing. And again, I can say this because I didn't have anything to do with it. But politics, you always have to do targeting. Like, what are you going to focus on? Yeah. Because kind of, you can't boil the ocean. So uh, two guys in the Lincoln Project, Trigley Olson uh, and Jeff Timmer. Trigley's an interesting guy, worked a lot in Eastern Europe. Jeff used to be head of the Michigan Republican Party. They looked at all the races and they put them through a democracy filter. What races are the most important to the preservation of democracy? It was a really interesting idea and use that to target the races. So the, the, the number one race, Pennsylvania governor's race. Pennsylvania's a key state. The guy is a straight out autocrat. Yeah. Pretense. He appoints the secretary of state. That's a huge race. So do you think um, Arizona is, uh, is a Arizona is a was another Arizona yeah. was another. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Michigan, the governor's race was one. Yeah. Um, but Arizona seems to be on a razor's edge. I mean, Pennsylvania and, and Michigan are looking to be at least leaning in the democratic yeah. uh, direction, but Arizona seems to be a much tighter race. Yep. Yep. I, I worked in Arizona, I worked for John Kyle, the Senator there than presidential races. All I can say is if I was in the Hobbs campaign, I would never 
run another positive ad. <laughs> I would only run negative ads against Terry Lake because it is about, you have to make the race about what she, she said she wanted to secede from the United States. She wanted to fire the federal government. They fire the federal government. So no yeah. more social security, no more Medicare, no more military bases, no more DEA agents. That's going to really work out swell. And I would go in and, and I would wake up in the morning and I would attack and I would go to bed at night attacking. Yeah. And I hope that's what they do. She's a dangerous, dangerous person. Scary like this. Yeah. I so, so and I'm sure there are you know, a, a dozen or a couple dozen house races that LPs focusing on too, right? Yeah, we, you know, our feeling about this is a lot of these house races are going to be determined by the races above them. Mm. And that in a scale of efficiency, given resources, and like most organizations, we have less resources now than we did in 24, on 20. It's not that we're not focusing, on, but the, the best thing you can do, say in you know Michigan, is try to increase the odds of the governor winning. It, 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 that affects turnout. Right. It would require in close races to really be a down ticket overvote, which is happens, but it's rare. So it, it's sort of like in a scale, what is what is the most efficient way that you, it costs the same to make an ad in a house race as it does to make an ad for a governor's race. That's interesting. That makes sense um, why Pennsylvania governor would be important because that then affects the down ticket Senate race, yeah. uh, Fetterman and uh, and Oz. So I, I that that makes sense. It also makes sense. Rick, Rick was trying to Rick was trying to be diplomatic when I asked him if uh, any any uh, efforts being put into my district, California 27, because it was it was one of, if not the closest uh, held race, uh, yeah. less than one tenth of one percent. The uh, the Republican won. And yeah. he said, we're looking at it. We're looking. At it. <laughs> well, you know, politics is usually uh, a process of Sophie's choice, mm. because when people say you are like. One of the big issues in presidential campaigns is always scheduling. Where do you want to go? Every The one thing everybody has in a campaign is the exact same amount of time. Yeah. So and they say, well, you ought to go to Richmond. You ought to go to Phoenix. You ought to go to um, Pensacola. And the answer to that is, yes, we should. They're all right. <laughs> you know, it, it comes down to politics is often about distinguishing between the critical and the really important. And that's a that's a difficult thing to distinguish, and it requires a lot of hard mental discipline. That it's not that these other things aren't worth doing; they are, but you have to have a triage of effort. That makes sense. It makes sense. So you look at races that are um, pretty tight, that are critical, uh, but that also, if if your efforts can have like one percent of influence or two percent of influence, that that can turn the race. And that yeah. ultimately is what happened in twenty twenty, arguably. Uh, placing your efforts in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, all four of those states uh, were were won by very, very thin margins. Yeah, politics is, usually comes down to a game of small numbers. Yeah. And it's both frightening and incredibly inspiring in a way, because at that level, individuals can still make a real difference. Yeah. You know, the, the old thing that if you got one more vote per precinct, you would have won. A lot of races are like that. Yeah. And it people just need to realize. I mean, look, the greatest block of voters in America are people who don't vote. I mean, I'm sort of a nut on this, and there's about five people in America who agree with me, I realize, but I kind of like the Australian system where they fine you if you don't vote. <laughs> um, and they have big barbecues and parties at the polls. Um, <laughs> very Australian. But Look, I, I, I think we have to realize two realities that we don't know the outcome of this. I mean, America could become an autocracy. We have to acknowledge that. And we have to acknowledge that the only thing we can do is fight. Yeah, yeah. And what people don't understand about these, these other forces is 
there are a lot of buffoonish figures there, the Boparts, the Matt Gage, you know, Marjorie Taylor, whatever her name is. But it's not a buffoonish movement. And all of the elements that if you look historically at what is necessary for autocracy to win are there. Uh, they have the support of a major party. They have major funding, the Peter Thiel's of the world. They have a propaganda arm, a vast propaganda arm, and Fox and its allies, you know, the Don, the Bongios, the Shapiro's, like you're saying, and they have shock troops. And they have a concerted effort to construct a legal theory to justify autocracy. Mm. And those are the elements you need. And they're all there. This is why I'm depressing, by the way. Yeah, no, I, I don't know where to, where to take. Well, what I will say is that the in 2020, the um, institutions held, if ever, just barely, you know, like the concern we talked about the judges, the, those very same judges, yeah. uh, there are at least a couple that came before the Supreme Court and unanimously were dismissed. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't want to have rose colored glasses. So I, I'm aware that, you know, 2020 might have just been the practice running. And here's another thing to think about. 57% of Republicans in the House voted not to certify. Yeah, no, our so own. That's why I'm, I'm passionate about California 27. Because yeah, yeah. despite what he says about being a moderate Republican, he voted to overturn other states' proper elections. Yeah. Pennsylvania on that night, Arizona the next day. There's no reason to think that next time it's not going to be 75%. Yeah, yeah. No, that's how this election's going is is literally hundreds of candidates are on the ballot uh, that are election deniers. Um, and uh, so it, it is we, we are at a critical moment. Um, so I'm afraid to ask you, you know, more of your outlook, because, uh, you know, like I said, we spent enough time in the uh, in the apocalypse right now. <laughs> but well, look, I, I, I think it's I think it's winnable and I think it's losable. All right. Well, let's look. If I didn't think if, if you know, I, I think it's certainly winnable. Well, let's let's win it. There, there are more of us than there are of them. Yeah. Yeah. And listen, we're, uh, you know, guys like me are in an interesting position because I've said this before, where Christy Smith, a Democratic candidate for this House race, is um, is someone who has policies that we defer about 75 percent of the time, if not more. But the one thing that we agree on for sure is democracy itself. Hey, you know, I, I got to ask this question. Yeah. A lot in, in 2020, yeah, but what if Bernie Sanders was a nominee instead of Biden? And my answer was, I'd vote for Bernie in a heartbeat. And I, I you know, I, I live in Vermont. I went to college, uh, graduate school in Middlebury. Yeah. I can remember riding my bicycle down the main street in Burlington, and there was this lunatic out there ranting about rent control, and it was Bernie running for mayor. And he, <laughs> and he won by eight votes. They, How know, about they called, that? They called him Red Bernie. He was actually a pretty good mayor. So, you know, but I would have voted for Bernie in a heartbeat. You know, it's interesting because I, I live in California, so it's a it's a theoretical question for me. But if I was living in one of my favorite counties, Bucks County, where the vote would have really counted. Yeah, I definitely you know what? In 2020, it would have been no question. 2016, I think I would have made that mistake of voting for a third party candidate uh, because yeah. I, I thought it was such an obvious slam dunk that Hillary was going to win that I could afford I, to vote. My listen, conscience. That, that is one of the realities of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. You, could, you couldn't imagine a guy who talked in public about having sex with his daughter winning the Republican nomination. Yeah. And you couldn't imagine a guy who after the Hollywood access tapes or access yeah. Hollywood tapes getting elected president. But he did. It's funny. I knew I, I knew that we were in trouble in, in August of 2015. So the prior the prior um, the prior cycle, the the Republican Party went through this process of like, you know, th there was like a favorite candidate of the month. It was Herman Cain and then Michelle Bachman and Sarah Palin. But I had a feeling that that Romney eventually the, the same candidate would get the nomination. But in 2015, August of 2015, when Trump said, I like my uh, my soldiers, you don't get caught about about McCain. And then he was still a month later, he was still uh, leading the polls. I thought, oh, baby, we're in trouble now. And he just persisted and persisted and persisted. Nobody could get him off that throne. I knew I knew that we were in trouble. But I just I really thought that that Hillary would would run away with it. So it, it was I different. Think she left, I think a lot of people, I think she left a lot of votes on the table. I would have voted for a New York Yankee over over Donald Trump. That's how passionately I felt about it in you, 2020. It, um, 
you know, I, I think she underperformed her numbers. Yeah. Because a lot of people couldn't imagine her losing. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I could keep you here for hours and hours. I got to say, you know, but um, do, do you have any questions for me? No, no. Listen, uh, I think it's great you're doing this and, uh, you know, keep at it. I appreciate your time. I appreciate it. So it's so great to get to know you better. I'm serious about that sugar fish or whatever, you know, your choice. All I'll right. come down to you and when you're in Santa Monica. I go up, like I say, I go up to Santa Inez to ride my bike. So oh, that'll yeah. be fun too. That'll be fun too. Uh, I have friends up there who know some hidden little micro vineyards. I don't know if you're a yeah, wine drinker, but you know, we'll have to do that. But uh, before we go, how can folks find you online? Uh, oh, your um, I'm only on Twitter. God help me. Uh, Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. Awesome. Awesome. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about TPNR or easier to recommend than ever. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. Politics, www. Remember the www.politicsandreligion.us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D, politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.